A remnant shall remain. Appreciate you guys hanging out. I'm Steve Bateman. I'm pastor of First Bible Church here in Decatur. And I mentioned my wife a little earlier in that panel. She has a habit. It's a good habit. And uh, every morning she gets a cup of coffee, sits in the same chair, wraps up in the same blanket, uh, reads her Bible. She refuses to get a new one. It has fallen apart. And... um, then she has a devotional guide, and right now she's using uh, this devotional guide that um, was put together by Paul David Tripp. Some of you may have seen it. And uh, after she read uh, October 20th, she said, here, I think you would like this. I'm not going to read all of it, uh, but the first part says, uh, talks about when, when Tripp was in seminary and how excited he was because the first time he's really studying doctrine and he's learning theology and church history and he is just ecstatic over all the things that he is learning. And uh, then he closes it out like this. Um, this is what the theology of Scripture is meant to do. The purpose of the doctrine that is revealed in the Word of God is not to produce generation after generation of what I call theo-geeks. You know what I mean. Egghead, biblical academics who think about things no one else does, who talk in a language that no one else understands, and who don't do many people much good. Here's the thing we need to be reminded of again and again. The theology of the Word of God was never intended to be an end in itself, but a means to an end, and that end is a radically transformed life. The purpose of theology is not knowledge, but holiness. Um. As I've thought about just listening to the, by the way, this is the longest I've ever sat on a sermon all day long, listening to other guys preach, and that was, that's harder than I thought it was going to be. I will tell you, as I've listened to them, I thought, this really is, the way it has been organized, it comes together just really, really well, because in a sense, all the things that we've talked about so far, whether it's scripture or prayer, uh, the, the, the church, weakness, all these things are, in a sense, a means to an end. Uh, and the end is that transformed life and that holiness. Now, I know you're going to say, oh, no, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Or as Piper says, to uh, glorify God by enjoying him forever. But I'd like to, to, to suggest to you that the, the, um, the measure of your, your joy uh, rises in proportion to your holiness. So you can't really separate those two things. I'm assuming here this afternoon that we've got a room full of guys who know how to do exegesis and uh, they know how to do Greek word studies and you know how to parse Greek verbs and uh, you know your way around the scripture and, and yet the means, what, why we do this and ultimately it is going to be about holiness. The sufficiency of holiness for ministry uh, means that there are many, many traits, as has already been mentioned, that are very, very helpful in ministry. I mean, if you're talented, if you have an imposing presence, if you have an engaging personality, if you have a, an outrageous sense of humor, if you are, uh, have rhetorical, oratorical skills and you can hold people's attention, uh, all of those things will serve you well and they can be really, really good things. Uh, but nowhere in Scripture does it say that those are necessary things, let alone, let alone sufficient things. In fact, what we see in Paul, the Apostle Paul as he describes himself in First and Second Corinthians is pretty much not any of those things. Um, the, the, the way that he, uh, through his weakness, was able to have such an effective ministry is an inspiration to us and a comfort to us. Now, when we say that, that holiness is sufficient... For ministry, we mean that not depending on these other things, but in the end, we must have holiness. 
Whereas these other things are not said in Scripture that are necessary, it does say in Scripture that holiness really is necessary in Scripture. So I'm going to look at one verse with you, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, and we'll focus in on this one verse, <clears throat> but look at some of the verses around it. This is uh, the Apostle Paul. We've already been in 2 Corinthians already this, this, uh, this day, where he says in chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises, beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, there is a lot there uh, to um, unpack. Let me remind you the context. About 50, 51 uh, A.D., Paul goes into Corinth. He plants a church. He's there around 18 months. He leaves uh, uh, about 18 months later to go to Ephesus. About 54 A.D., he writes 1 Corinthians because he hears they're having trouble. You've read 1 Corinthians. You know what they're dealing with. By about 56 A.D., he writes 2 Corinthians. And there's probably two other letters in there that have been lost. You've studied all of that as well. So 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is really 4 Corinthians. Corinthians. And in the end, what he's addressing is a church uh, that is really filled with trouble and strife. And there are two things, especially that he's addressing in 2 Corinthians. And one of them is the pressure on the people of God in the church there to go back to past relationships, all right, to go back to the idol temples, back to the idol worship, uh, back to the idol festivals, and uh, go back into idolatry. The other thing is they're being pulled in other directions from uh, false apostles who are coming in, who are preaching a different gospel and a different Jesus, and uh, they are more impressive and they have more rhetorical skill than Paul does. And they're undermining Paul's authority. All right, remember that. as important as we consider kind of the background there. Therefore, 2 Corinthians is a defense of Paul's apostleship and an appeal to the people of God to come back, not only to Christ, but he does it by saying, come back to me. So it's a very, very personal letter. You've left me. Make room in your heart for me, Paul says. Because as an apostle, he represents Christ. To come back to Christ is to come back through the apostles. If you want Jesus, you get the apostles. If you want the apostles, you get Jesus. You can't separate those two. So he says, come back to me. In 1 Corinthians, he had already said, imitate me. All right, so I know Paul Lamey's sitting right there, so I better do a little context work here. Chapter 7, verse 1. When he says, since we have these promises, that, puts us, that pushes us back into the immediate context. Let's go to verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, and what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, and what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So Paul goes back in the Old Testament. He quotes, uh, it's kind of, he's cobbled together several verses, some from Leviticus, some from Isaiah, uh, some uh, probably from Deuteronomy as well. In other words, he's going back to these Old Testament believers. This is what God did. What did he do with his Old Testament covenant community? Well, first of all, he sought them. He sought them. He went after them. He went at, they didn't come after him. He went after them. He goes to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Nothing you can do about it. I'm going to make a great nation, and through you I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. He sought them, and then what did he do? He bought them. He bought them out of Egypt. He bought them with blood. 
He sought them. He bought them. Then what did he do? He brought them into the family. Brought them into his family. Now I'm your father. You're my sons and daughters. You're in my family. I took you out of this family, and I put you in this family. So he sought them. He bought them. He brought them. Then he taught them. That's when you get Mount Sinai. That's when you get the moral, civil, and ceremonial law. He sought them. He bought them. He brought them. Then he taught them. He didn't say, follow the Ten Commandments and then you'll be my children. He says, you are my children, therefore follow the Ten Commandments. This is how you are holy. This is how you live the life of a son, a daughter of the living God. This is what my children look like. He sought them, he bought them, he brought them, and then he taught them. And he's saying to the Corinthians, this is what happened to you. This is what God did with you. Years ago, when I came to, the, to Corinth with the gospel, God sought you, he bought you with the blood of the Lamb, he brought you into the family of God, out of the family uh, of the devil, who the devil, if, if, if God's not your father, the devil is. Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews, you're your father, the devil. And then he brought you into the family, and then he taught you. And so uh, with all these Gentiles, he had to do a lot of teaching, right? Because they didn't have the background of the Old Testament. So he's saying that's where you were, and, and since we have these promises that were given to the Old Testament covenant community, there are promises for you as well, because you are my people. All right, now, beloved, he loves them. He loves them. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So the promises are there. Likewise, this is for you. Holiness, let's focus on that word a little bit, uh, essentially means to be set apart by something, from something, for something, in order to do something. You're set apart by the sovereignty of God. He elects. He chooses. You're set apart by the sovereignty of God from the enemy of God. You're in the, you're in the kingdom of darkness. You've been released from the enemy. So you're, you're now, uh, because God has, in his wisdom, he has come after you, and he, he, he saved you, and he brought you now into the family of God. Then, after, once he has brought you into the family of God and taught you these things, that in holiness he sets you apart by his sovereignty from his enemy for his family so that you can become like his son. So that's what holiness is. It's becoming more and more like Christ. Now, when he says this, recognize there are two kinds of holiness and positional holiness, the imputed righteousness of Christ. God sees you as holy. So positionally, your legal standing as a believer, God looks at you, he sees perfect holiness, the righteousness of Christ wrapped around you. That's why in 1 Corinthians, he addresses them as saints. I'm reading 1 Corinthians, and I'm thinking, saints? He calls them saints, holy ones. He says, you are saints, now act like it. So you're saints, you're positionally a saint, you're holy, you're accepted for, righteous, for the righteousness of Christ's sake. Now act like it. Now we're getting into progressive sanctification. Now we're getting into the process of actual personal holiness where your actual experience starts to match up with the legal position that you have before Christ. All right, so he's talking about progressive sanctification here. When he says, from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion. It's not complete yet in the fear of God. Notice the already not yet. You're already holy, but you're not yet holy. 
Uh, notice it's a, you, you were made holy as a point, now in a process. Notice it's command. He says, it's, he says, let us cleanse ourselves. I think that's a hortatory subjunctive. And it says, let us cleanse ourselves. Let us do something to cleanse ourselves. Uh, those of you who raised boys, you, you probably remember if you've already done it, if, you're going, if this is ahead of you, this is what you're going to find out. When they start having those hormones, they start to smell bad. And so about 11 or 12 years old, you'll, you'll be sitting in the house and what is that? And you will say to your son, cleanse yourself. And uh, he'll say something like this, I can't. You can't. I, I have provided for you a house, a shower, water, a hot water heater, soap, shampoo, and a towel. This is not a matter you can't. You won't. You can, but you will not. You, you cannot, you cannot cleanse, you shouldn't be cleansing your son at 12, all right? You say to your son, cleanse yourself, but it's all yours. You have given him the ability to do it. You have empowered him to do it. And now he can do it if he will do it, if he chooses to do it. Probably one of the, the most influential books in my life, set the traje- trajectory of my life, uh, Pursue the Holiness by Jerry Bridges. A lot of you guys have already read this. I bought this in 1978 when it came out. I was in college. It was $2.25, it says right there. That's how much books have gone up. And uh, let me just read one section from here when he talks about holiness. He said, Do not let sin reign, implying that this is something for which we ourselves are responsible. The experience of holiness is not a gift we receive like justification, but something which we are clearly exhorted to work at. Now, the, the thing I took away from, uh, this was the, my gateway drug to the Puritans. That's how I was introduced to Reformed theology and Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones and Jonathan Edwards and John Owen. And it all started with this book. The key takeaway that I brought from that book was this. God will do what you can't do, but he won't do what you should do. God won't do what you can't do. God will do what you can't do, but he won't do what you should do. And when he says, cleanse yourself, he's saying you need to do something. Now, I want to be real practical for the rest of the time. That's, that's the text. What did he do? How, did he cleanse, how do you cleanse yourself? How do you make yourself more holy? Not, you don't wait around for this to happen. You got to do stuff. So I'm going to give you four things. I'm going to take it right from the immediate t- context here that we got to do. And I'll give you four words. Number one, accountability. You say, man, I've heard that before. Hey, if you ever hear something innovative you've never heard before, you should be suspicious. Uh, You mean the church has never heard this before? If you hear something the church never came up with before, you got a problem. Now, when I say accountability, what I mean is, notice he says we, first of all, let us cleanse ourselves. Notice he's not saying, the pastor's not saying to the people, y'all need to cleanse yourself, cleanse yourself. Y'all need to be holy. He's saying, Let, uh, we're in this together. Let's be holy. Let's cleanse ourselves together. So he's including that, that accountability. Look over to chapter 6, verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves. Now he's talking about him and T- uh, Timothy because he introduced himself in the entrance to the letter. So we, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. It's together. It's together. Um, look at chapter 8. Uh, 
Well, let me just tell you what chapter 8 says on interest of time. Remember when he's, they're taking up the collection to take to Jerusalem, and he says the famous brother is going to go along with us, and we don't know who the famous brother was, which is a good warning to everybody who wants to be a famous brother. Uh, you know, you might be famous here, but not there. You might be famous now, but not then. We don't know who that is, but he went along with them. Why? Because they're, they're handling money, and he says, I don't want this to look bad. So in chapter 8, he says, this is why this guy's going along, for the accountability of it. Um, I, from early on, when I was one of the last persons to get a smartphone for various reasons. One of them, they didn't have covenant eyes for it yet, so it took me a long time. So I got two ways to get to the internet, one through my laptop and one through my phone, and both of them have covenant eyes on there. And uh, my, covenant, my accountability partners are two of my elders, and that, do you think that affects any of my decision-making process when I get to the Internet? It absolutely does. And when my son went to, the, went to college and he got his laptop, I said, you got to get covenant eyes, and you can get any two accountability partners you want, and one of them is going to be me. He said to me, he, you know, something like this. He said, really? I said, really. He said, do you, you don't trust me? I said, I do not. I, I love you. The Bible says I have to love you. I am nowhere commanded to trust any man. And I trust you as much as I trust, as I trust me. Uh, it, it, this is one of the ways you cleanse yourself and you keep in that process is you've got to have men around you who help you do that. This cannot be done by yourself. It was never intended to be done by yourself. So here's the second word. Consistency. Consistency. In other words, do the, same t- do the same thing over a long period of time. Do it over and over again. Be consistent. Look what he says in chapter 6, verse 4. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. It's a word that means steadfast. Be consistent. When? When it's easy? No. In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights. Endure it. Keep enduring. Keep being consistent over a long period of time. Sometimes it's boring. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's interesting. Doesn't matter. You keep doing the same things. You keep praying. You keep taking in the Word of God. And you keep obeying it. You keep listening to God in His Word. And you talk to God in prayer. And you do what He says. You listen. You talk. You do what he says. You listen to the Lord. You talk to the Lord. You do what he says. I can't make it any more simple than that. And it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. And you got to do it every day for the rest of your life. It's just being consistent. There's no quick fix. There's no shortcut to this. It's discipline. He used the athletic imagery, especially in 1 Corinthians. A guy says, I want to lose weight and I want to gain strength. Well, you got to eat less you got to exercise more, and you got to have deep sleep. Eat less, exercise more, deep sleep. And whatever else you hear is going to be some variation of that. And you can't do it for a week. you got to do it day after day after day after day. You gotta, this is the long haul. If you're going to grow in holiness, it's not going to happen overnight. You know that, right? So when you get discouraged, oh, yeah, I expected this. You're supposed to get discouraged. That's part of the deal. So be consistent. Do it over and over. And what helps you do that? Well, accountability with your brothers. It's not easy. It was a Scott Cochran who is the uh, uh, 
fitness and conditioning coach at Alabama and then went to Georgia. I don't know where he is now. I never, they, they're following me around the weight room with all these Alabama football players one day and I was, they just, you know, had these cameras in there. And he'd yell at them. And I remember one thing he said, uh, if it feels good, you ain't doing it right. I'll just never, I'll never forget him saying that. It, who told you this was going to be easy? If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And, and if, it's, if, if you get pushed back, that's, that's, that's the way it's supposed to work. That's the deal. So you do that consistently over a long period of time. It's not easy and it's not fast. Accountability, number one. Consistency, number two. Number three, adversity. And I said that, you know, if, I, if you did a Venn diagram of all these talks, they start to really overlap. So I'm in 2 Corinthians, and uh, Sean was talking, Sean DeMars was talking about adversity and affliction and a thorn in the flesh. Look at chapter 6, verse 4 again. Uh, As servants of God, we, accountability, commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, consistency. In afflictions, adversity. The word is thlipsis. That, word, that Greek word for trial, tribulation is used in 2 Corinthians more than any other book in the whole Bible. It's trial, it's uh, adversity, it's pain, it's suffering. It's the things you would never choose for yourself, but a sovereign God will bring into your life for his own purposes. So this is the way he starts off the book. Don't you love 2 Corinthians 1? Let me show you where he uses the word affliction several times. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 4 well, let's start with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. All right, here's the first thing to remember. If, if you're going to be a good leader, you have to have affliction. And the reason is the people you're ministering to and leading are going to suffer affliction. And they need to, first of all, see how affliction gets handled by a man of God. But they also need someone with a, a soft heart. And if you've never experienced the affliction, if you've, never, if you've never stood at an open grave of someone that you love deeply, you don't know what to say and, more importantly, what not to say to the next person who stands at the open grave of someone they love. It's the affliction that makes you a better leader. But, but notice, look at verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. So first of all, you've got to have affliction to make you a good leader, Secondly, you've got to have affliction to make you a good follower. If you're going to follow God, if you're going to follow Christ, it's the affliction that keeps you there, the affliction that keeps you close to Him, recognizing and understanding your dependence upon Him. When my son, who's 35 now, but when he was little, he's about three or four, we, uh, he wanted to go, I took him to the water park, just him and me, day, you know, guys day out. And... Um, and we did the Lazy River. He got bored with that very quickly. His, his fifth grade teacher sitting right over there, Mr. Higgins. I, can't, this is, I hadn't seen him in a long time. And Josh was, let me just put it this way. Josh is a very active young man. And the Lazy River was enough for him. So even at the age of three or four, he, he wanted to go to the wave pool. I said, okay. 
So we go to the wave pool, and I'm holding on to his uh, hand, and uh, he was just giggling and laughing because the waves were coming up, and they were hitting him, you know, right in his knees. He thought that was the funniest thing in the world. And then he, wanted, he pulled me out, and he wanted to go a little farther, and now it's hitting him in his waist, and then it's hitting him in his chest, and he wants to keep on going further. And he's just laughing, and I'm like, I'm, you know, because I'm happy if my kids are happy. And, uh, and then we get out there, it's around his neck, and he thinks that's hilarious. He doesn't realize, I'm, you know, I've got his hand. And he, then he starts tugging at my hand, and he looks up at me, and he says, let go. And I said, son, I can't let you go. And after a while, he said, he, you, he said let go. And I said, I'm not going to let you go. He said, let go. And I, then I tried to reason with him. I said, son, don't you know if I let you go, you're going to go down in this water, and you will ingest water that's, that, that is filled with people who are not your relatives. Right? <laughs> and, and then, so after, after reasoning with him, he said, what? Let go. So I did what every good dad would do as long as his wife is not there. <laughs> I, I let him go. And he went down underneath the water. And he is, you know, he's just sucking in water. I'm, you know, envisioning this whole thing as I'm watching. I see his little hand come out of the, 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 the water. And it's like this. It's like grasping for me. And I grab his hand and I pull him up. And he holds onto my neck. And he's, he's just holding me as tight as he ever has. And he's crying and he's blubbering. And I'm thinking, I like this. You know, he's holding, on, he's holding on tight to me. I love my son. And get him all settled down. And a few minutes later, he looks at me. He said, again? And I thought, that's it, man. That's me. That's me. Let go. I got this. And the the affliction and the the suffering is there because, as you heard from Sean, I mean, that's exactly what's going on. That's the thorn in the flesh. To, To prevent us from getting to a place where we should be, to bring us back, to correct us. Uh, one of the hardest times of my life was years ago when my daughter was born and, and then she was 11 months old and she was dying. We didn't know why she was dying. Put her in the hospital. She was in ICU. Uh, she had all these tubes connected to her. They couldn't diagnose the problem, but she was slowly slipping away from us. And um, uh, she's, she, by the way, she made it. She, she's alive and well and she has two beautiful kids. But, but we didn't know she was, she was going to make it. My parents were getting a divorce. My uh, dad uh, uh, started dating his secretary, and I just got off the phone with my mom. My, my daughter's dying in the hospital. I'm trying to finish on my master's thesis at seminary, and my world is caving in. I drove through red lights. You ever do that? You ever be in that, that place where you're just driving through intersections, you don't even remember the red light, and just God just, you know, he kept me. And I don't even remember who it was but somebody gave me a copy of a poem, and I have always kept a copy of the poem in all of my Bibles ever since he handed this to me. And ironically enough, it's an anonymous poem. We don't know who wrote it. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, Watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trials, shapes of clay, which only God understands. 
While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. There's no way to grow in holiness without adversity. And it keeps pushing us. Now, here's the thing. If you're successful in establishing, seeking out accountability and consistency over the years, and you go through adversity, and God does a, uh, there's a depth of walking with God you cannot have unless you've suffered, um, then, you, then you're walking with God, and people will notice. And, and that's when you're in danger because they will praise you for it. They, they will look to you and say, you're such a great model. Thank you for teaching us this. Thank you for being faithful. And so I'm going to give you the fourth. I don't even know what time it is. The fourth, I did, I did it. I don't, even know. I, really, I don't even know where we started. Here's the fourth one. It's secrecy. And what I mean by that is uh, chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from, both, from every defilement, body and spirit. I see your bodies. I see your bodies right now. I cannot see your spirit. I, I see your, your body. I see the public life, but I cannot see your soul. I, cannot, I, I can know what you do. I have no idea why you're doing it. I don't know what your motives are. I, I don't know your thoughts. I don't know what you're thinking about me or this or th- even this passage or about God, but God does. And, and what happens is if you become successful in, in growing in your holiness and then becoming an example, that's a very dangerous place to be because now the focus can become on the public side of you and you start to neglect the private side. And, and when that happens, what's the prescription for it? And the answer is secrecy. Secrecy. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6? Don't be like the hypocrites who go out and when they give, they call attention to themselves so that when they give, uh, they seek the reward to please other people. And he says, but you, when you give in what? Secret. The Greek word krypto, where we get the word crypt. Go to that secret place. And you give so no one else sees you except God. And, and he who sees you in secret will reward you in secret. And then he goes to not only from giving but prayer. Because we can get good at public prayer. Um, but he says, but when you pray, go into your secret place. And, and, and when you fast, do it secret. Don't bring a lot of attention to yourself. It's intentionally building into your life that secret kind of ministry that no one else will find out about. If you're in a bathroom... And you see the toilet paper and ta- paper towels, all kind of wet stuff on the floor. Think someone's going to pick that up. Someone's got to pick that up. And if you pick it up, no one's going to see. No one's going to see except God. And that's, that's your moment when you can say, God, look what I'm doing. Look at me. God, look at me. And that's cool. See, that's your father. And, and you're not doing it to impress anyone else. There's just a thousand ways to do that, to intentionally do the things in secret that no one else will find out about. But secrets breed intimacy. And the reason, hopefully, you have an intimate relationship with your wife is because she knows your secrets and no one else knows. The secrets breed the intimacy. And our secrets with God breed intimacy with God. 
and contribute to our holiness. I, we, at one time, Laura and I lived in a, a neighborhood that was, uh, we leased a house. Everybody else owned their house. And so it was one of those neighborhoods where if your yard really looked good, you'd get a sign, yard of the month, you know, one of those neighborhoods. I leased a house. I don't care, you know. I just mowed it. And, uh, and then there was a storm that came through, and everybody had privacy fences. And when that storm came through, it, it knocked down privacy fence after privacy fence, just in the backyard, boom, 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 boom. And for the first time, we all got to see each other's backyards. And they were a mess. It was, you know, just stuff dumped out there, black garbage cans, this. It wasn't mowed, it wasn't trim. They didn't, where did they put all their effort? Front yard. Front yard. And, and the longer we do this, the better we can get at putting our attention and our effort on the front yard. And that's why he says, uh, how are we going to do this? Well, we do this in the fear of God. Where, where else have you seen something like that? Well, look over at chapter 5, verse 9, verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And on that day, all we'll see then what God sees now. Let's pray. Father, we need each other. Um, we need your word. We need prayer. We need each other. We need accountability. We need grace. Uh, for you have called to us to finish this all the way to the end. All the way to the end. For your glory. Help us to finish well. In Jesus' name, amen.